Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. We're going to talk today about the latest violence in Israel-Palestine, about Israel's new far-right government and, as Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas gets older, the potential dangers in managing the succession in Palestinian leadership. The Israeli Defense Force released helmet cam footage of troops storming a building in Janine. The raid started just after seven this morning. Israel says it was targeting militants from Islamic Jihad who were planning multiple major terror attacks in Israel. But Palestinians condemned the operation as a massacre. So that was Thursday last week. Then on Friday, a Palestinian gunman killed seven Israelis in East Jerusalem. Tonight, first responders racing to a chaotic and deadly scene in East Jerusalem that police are calling a terror attack. Bodies and blood in the street and a car riddled with bullets. Israeli police say a 21-year-old Palestinian gunman opened fire on worshippers celebrating the Jewish Sabbath, killing at least seven people, injuring three others, including a 14-year-old. The gunman, who police say was acting alone, fleeing the scene, but later shot and killed by police. The Janine raid, the attack in Jerusalem, another attack the following day in which a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot two Israelis. All these are the latest and what's often described as a cycle of violence in Jerusalem and the West Bank that has surged over the past year. More frequent Israeli raids often provoke gun battles in West Bank cities. Israelis say they're trying to root out Palestinian terrorists responsible for an increasing number of attacks on Israelis. More Palestinians died last year, according to human rights groups, than in the past almost 20 years, including militants, but also civilians, among the many young Palestinians. 2022 saw the worst levels of Israeli-Palestinian violence in more than a decade, with the killing of more than 150 Palestinians and over 25 Israelis. In response to a wave of Palestinian attacks about six months ago, the Israeli army launched a crackdown against gunmen in the West Bank cities of Nablus and Janine. Palestinians are angry not just at Israel, but at their own leaders, who they view as complicit in the occupation and in Israeli operations. Pockets of the West Bank are even off limits now to Palestinian security forces. New militant groups have appeared, particularly in the West Bank cities of Nablus and Janine. Formed in Nablus about six months ago, the Lion's Den is unaffiliated with the more established Palestinian militant groups and opposed to the Palestinian Authority, which it views as collaborating with Israel. Local Palestinians say the difficult economic situation and high unemployment have made these young men desperate and worried that the new far-right Israeli government's policies will increase the hardship and violent confrontations. There's a pervasive sense of hopelessness among Palestinians. The peace process pretty much dead, Israeli settlement expansion, Palestinian dispossession continuing, and any hope of a two-state solution fading. The new Israeli government, headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, is the most nationalist and anti-Palestinian in Israel's history with coalition partners rooted in the settler movement and openly supportive of Israel formally annexing the West Bank. Plus, there's the question of what happens when Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, or Abu Mazin, who's not getting any younger, passes from the political scene. So what hope is there of slowing the violence? What should we expect from Israel's new government? And what should we be watching in the weeks ahead, particularly around the Muslim holy month of Ramadan and the Jewish Passover? And after Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to the region this past week, Should we expect anything different from Washington or other Western powers? To talk about all this, I'm extremely happy to welcome back onto the podcast Myra of Sunshine and Tahani Mustafa. Myra, Tahani, welcome back on. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Richard. 
So could we start then by talking about the violence over the past week? So there were the attacks in East Jerusalem, which we're going to come to. But last week, this Israeli raid on Jenin refugee camp, which Israeli officials say was aimed at arresting militants that were planning attacks. It killed what? I think the numbers are now 11 Palestinians, including a 61-year-old woman. Tahani, what do we know about the operation? So the operation was probably the most lethal in over 22 years now. And essentially, Israel had gone in undercover. It was a routine search and arrest operation for three suspects. But this time, there was the intention of a targeted assassination of the three. And unfortunately, it was a raid that ended up leading to clashes with armed factions within the camp itself. and. Essentially, what a lot of Palestinians are now describing as a massacre in Janine. Of the people that were killed, five were militants, the others were civilians. And it was probably the most lethal raid that we've seen since the Second Intifada. So we saw Israel attacking hospitals, preventing medics from getting to those injured. We saw bystanders and civilians being implicated in those clashes. It was an incredibly traumatic event for those residents of that camp. And the Israeli government says that it was, or the Israeli security forces say that it was targeting militants from the, or affiliated to the Islamic Jihad that were planning attacks. I mean, do you know any more about that? Again, this is part of a wider context of Israel since March 2022, since we saw an uptick in lone wolf attacks from those coming from areas like Janine, where the PA are marginalized, being affiliated to radical elements like Islamic Jihad. We've seen Israel conduct accelerated operations and targeted assassinations across the Northern West Bank. And now that is spreading to the South West Bank. So this is, again, another incident of a search and arrest operation that has led to violent clashes where we've seen civilians being implicated in that. We've seen, if you want to call it collateral damage, you know, we've seen over 3000 Palestinians arrested just at the start of this year. We've seen over 400 search and arrest operations just in January alone and not to mention similar numbers of incursions. So this is practically part of a broader context of Israel really accelerating, preemptively acting, and essentially fueling anger on the ground. And so the following day, Friday, as we heard up top, you had this attack uh, in East Jerusalem, Palestinian gunmen killing seven Israelis. And on Saturday, this kid, this 13-year-old boy, shot a father and son also in East Jerusalem. So what do we know about those attacks? It is part of a broader pattern. So what we're seeing now is a younger generation who have no memory of the previous decades of living under a military occupation. They don't really have much memory of the first and second intifathers, but that doesn't necessarily disconnect them from this history of living under occupation. And so we have younger generations who are getting involved in these sorts of lone wolf attacks or in the phenomenon that's starting to increasingly spread across the West Bank, like armed groups. And a lot of them either have relatives that are in in Israeli prisons, they've had relatives that have been killed by Israelis. So they do have that connection. They may not necessarily have those memories of certain historic moments in time, but they definitely do have that longstanding connection. There is an intergenerational element here. Myra, do you want to say something about those attacks and what we know about them and what the reaction has been in Israel? So East Jerusalem, which has been a constant flashpoint in the violence between Israelis and Palestinians, came up again on Friday night and Saturday. On Friday, a 21-year-old Palestinian from East Jerusalem in Atur neighborhood shot seven people, some of them, I think, quite close, point-blank range. Some of the people were coming to help some of those injured. They were also shot and killed. So for Israel, especially on a Friday night when many residents in Jerusalem go to pray, this was extremely traumatic. And Israel has, in general, become quite accustomed to relative quiet 
So this uh, really rocked the country. It completely dominated the headlines. Tell me, Myra, it was one of the deadliest attacks for some time, right? Just like the Janine raid was the deadliest, and I think also for Jerusalem, it was the deadliest in probably 20 years. Jerusalem did see a twin bombing attack a couple of months ago in November, but the casualties were not as big. And when somebody is able to get a firearm and shoot from such close range, then the fatalities are much bigger. And that's something that happens quite rarely. We've seen a lot more stabbing attacks over the years. And what Israel is seeing in the last few months, but uh, in January especially, is a rise in shooting attacks by Palestinians. And then we saw the next day on Saturday in Silwan, another neighborhood of East Jerusalem, which is probably the most overpopulated uh, Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem. It's also where the city of David settlement and archaeological site is located. It's a constant point of tension. It's a place where armed settlers roam the streets. And that is where a 13-year-old Palestinian shot a father and a son, uh, injuring them both. I think the son is also an officer in the army and is currently in serious condition. He was shot back by one of them, the officer, I believe, as well as another civilian who was armed. And the 13-year-old, I believe, is in severe condition as well. And the 13-year-old attacked them deliberately or just attacked them because they were there? Do we know? It was reported in uh, Haaretz, I don't know if it was reported anywhere else, that in both cases, which just tells you a little bit about the cycle of violence and the constant violence for Palestinians in East Jerusalem, the 21-year-old shooter in the first shooting attack, he was cousins with another Palestinian in the Shuafat refugee camp who was killed and died of his wounds a few days ago. Israeli forces had gone in there to demolish the home of a different attacker who had killed a soldier a few months earlier. So they went in and as a result, riots broke out and he was killed. And so some people say that this was revenge for that. Again, inside East Jerusalem, nothing to do with Janine on this point. And the same thing with a 13-year-old. He's also a relative of a different Palestinian teenager, only 16 years old, who was killed in Silwan. So we see that a lot of Palestinians in East Jerusalem have families who see death and destruction on a daily level. So we'll come back a little bit later to this pattern of violence that you're talking about, the increase in these sort of knife attacks, now gun attacks on Israelis, the increase in Israeli operations, the increase also in settler violence against uh, Palestinians, really this sharp uptick over the past 18 months. We'll come back to some of that a bit later, but could we talk a little bit about the new Israeli government come to power recently? Bibi Benjamin Netanyahu is back, heading what appears to be the furthest right coalition in Israel's history. Three parties of the alliance are transparently Jewish, ethno-nationalist, expressly anti-Arab, and one of them is headed by this politician, Idmar Ben-Gavir, who has this long history of showing up in flashpoints, areas of friction between Israelis and Palestinians and stoking violence. And he's now actually the national security minister, so responsible for overseeing the Israeli police. So do you want to say a word or two about this government and how it came into being? Yeah, so the election in November was after four elections in which nobody had achieved a majority. Finally, in November, Netanyahu was able to secure a small majority of 64 seats in the 120 Knesset. And the reason for this is because he finally decided to turn to the far right and to work with them, to normalize them. So they received 14 seats together. The Itamar Ben-Gvir Jewish Power Party and the Religious Zionism Party headed by Bezalel Smotrich. This is something that they'd never seen before. They barely could pass the threshold. 
fire of Netanyahu in the past. He hasn't been prepared. Most other Israeli politicians haven't been prepared to form a coalition with those parties before. I mean, I guess also partly because they were much smaller. Netanyahu said in the last uh, election cycle that, that uh, Ben Gvir would never be a minister in his government. So they were sworn in just a, a little bit over a month ago. And the reason is because it took them two months of negotiations to form this coalition. And in these coalition documents that were signed, which are semi-binding, not quite binding, Netanyahu has given over to them many promises, which include various issues related to the settlements, issues related to granting authorities in the defense ministry to Batalis Motrich over the civil administration and COGAT, which is basically a way for him to increase demolitions of homes in specifically Area C of the West Bank, as well as to cut the red tape in building more and more settlements. Just to clarify, Area C is the part of the West Bank that's under Israeli control, so Area A, Palestinian control, Area B, Palestinian civilian control, Israeli security, but Area C is full Israeli control. Yes, and it's the majority of the territory. A lot of it is also rural, and it is where there are large demolition orders for Palestinian communities there. So in these coalition negotiations, Netanyahu made a lot of promises because he basically was dependent on these parties to form the coalition. And the Likud party itself is a very far-right party as well, and they've also introduced this judicial, what they call a reform, or what other people are calling an overhaul or a radical plan to effectively um, wipe out the power of the High Court of Justice in Israel. So could we talk in a moment about what this new government means for Israeli policy towards the Palestinians? But first, could we just look at what it's doing in Israel itself? So there's been these massive demonstrations, you know, unusually large for Tel Aviv, against what the new government is planning to do with the judiciary. Do you want to tell us a little bit about sort of what the plans are and what uh, Netanyahu's motives might be? Yeah, so without getting too wonky, I mean, basically his justice minister, which is a close confidant of Netanyahu, presented a plan very openly, uh, which includes a few major parts. One is an override clause, which means that with a simple majority of 61, the Israeli parliament can override any high court rejection of a law. So it basically means that the high court no longer has the power to protect minorities or protect Palestinians, which it did to a very limited extent to begin with. But it takes away any uh, checks and balances that the High Court of Justice presented because Israel does not have like the U.S. Uh, Constitution or two houses of government. It only has the Knesset. So you take away the High Court of Justice's power and you basically have no restraints on what the government can do. And some of the other ones are also the clauses that they want to pass. The legislation is um, weakening of the attorney general's roles, politicization of the way in which justices are chosen. And so this is a plan that has been in the works for, for quite a while. It's not necessarily new, except that the Likud party did not really campaign on this issue. So for many Israelis, even those who voted for Likud, this is coming as quite a surprise. Didn't Netanyahu, didn't he sort of say in interviews how much he valued the before the election, the separation of powers and that, uh, you know, although there would be reforms, they wouldn't erode the checks on executive and legislative authority? Yes, he's been quoted in the past, uh, not necessarily as recently as this year, but in years past, he's talked about the importance of the high court. And Israel, its image as a liberal democracy is in large part due to the powerful high court of justice. And he continues as well when Blinken was here to tell uh, everybody that Israel will remain a democracy and that the separation of powers will remain. But if you look at the actual plan, it's clear that it's quite the opposite. Assuming that he has the numbers in the Knesset, right? I mean, assuming that all his coalition partners also back the reform. As far as legislating the judicial reform, he has 64 Knesset seats. He can pass these laws with no problem. 
The main impediment right now is the combination of the protesters, and we've seen over 100,000 repeatedly in the last few weeks coming out. And even, I think, more powerful than the quantity is the quality of the people that are coming out, which includes economists, Nobel Prize laureates, former justices. His former chief of staff in the IDF, Bogi Alon, is one of the faces of the protest. This is somebody who has overseen Israeli invasions in Gaza, and he is now positioned against Netanyahu to save, as he calls it, Israeli democracy. So you have a, a very interesting dynamic in which uh, many, many people on the right, and as well as the religious right in Jerusalem, have come out to protest these reforms. So in face of all this sort of opposition on the streets, does it still look likely to go ahead? So this is a very critical time for Netanyahu because, as I said, there's a lot of high-tech sector employees who are going out on strike once a week now. There are some major companies who have said that they're going to pull their money out of Israel. They're going to take their investors elsewhere. So there's some real economic threats. And I think that's where Netanyahu is actually going to question how far he can go. The shekel has weakened a little bit against the dollar in recent days. So if we see a continued weakening of the economy, which is something that Netanyahu has prided himself on, and Israel has done quite well through many wars, through the pandemic, keeping a very strong economy. If he sees that under threat, then he might rethink how far to go. And there are talks now of the two sides in this debate coming together to reach some kind of compromise. And Netanyahu He's been talking about judicial reform for some time, but his motives, I mean, obviously he has his own corruption case that he's facing, but the motives are also related to the role that the high court plays in curbing what Israel's doing toward the Palestinians. Yeah, so many many Israelis believe that the, the reason Tanao is doing this is, is strictly to save himself from trial and from jail time. However, the settlement movement is known for its contempt of the high court for two main reasons. One is the disengagement from Gaza in 2005, when Israel pulled its settlers and army out of the Gaza Strip. And the settlers expected the high court to come in and say, hey, this is a right-wing government. This wasn't something that was planned. We should be protected. And so they really resent the high court. And the high court did also in 1979 make a ruling that Israel cannot for strictly purposes of Jewish settlement, uh, appropriate Palestinian land, private Palestinian land. It can do so for military reasons, security reasons, many other reasons, but not strictly because it wants Jews to live there. So that ruling has been the basis for the high court evacuating certain settler outposts over the years. And so this government across the board pretty much wants to continue settling Israelis in the West Bank, and they see the high court as the main impediment. So the efforts to curb judicial power are partly, not only, but partly about Palestinians. But more broadly, what does this new far-right Israeli government mean for the conflict? It's likely that this government is going to accelerate what we've already seen for many, many years, which is increasing settlement, increasingly home demolitions, and serving an agenda of Israel remaining in the West Bank and deepening its control of the West Bank. And Indeed, one of Ben Gavir's first acts as Israel's national security minister was to visit the Holy Esplanade, the Haram al-Sharif, the Al-Aqsa compound, the Temple Mount, in what appeared to be a move designed to keep his base happy, provoke Palestinians and Arabs more broadly, putting new stress on what's called the status quo, this informal arrangement that Israel and Jordan reached just after the 1967 war according to which Jordan administers the site with Israel in charge of security and overall access. And that status quo has already been strained over recent years with Israeli forces entering the Al-Aqsa Mosque, 
signs now with Ben Gavir's visit that there's going to be further pressure on the status quo. Yeah, so Ben Gavir is, he is known and identified with Temple Mount activists who are interested in continuing to change the status quo there. His wife is a Temple Mount activist. And I think his base is counting on him to push that envelope as much as possible. He promised that he would go up there once he became a minister, and that's what he did. The status quo issue on the Holy Esplanade is a bit complex because the status quo that was created tacitly in 1967 has continued to go through ebbs and flows, and Israel has continued to kind of push what it can do there uh, at different times. So at this point, for a minister like him to go up there is uh, provocative. And Jordan warned Israel about that. But for now, it seems like things are steady. But it, when we get into Ramadan and Passover, it'll be a real test uh, for how much this government is interested in trying to restrain what could be very explosive. And Ben Gvir will, I'm sure, will continue to go up there. And he continues to talk about the right of freedom of worship for Jews there. And he even talks about it as if it is uh, discriminatory against Jews that they can't freely pray there. Now, the Orthodox community in Israel doesn't go to the Temple Mount because it's considered too sacred to even step anywhere uh, in the plaza. So there's really a minority of nationalists who make this their agenda, and he is serving their interests. But in this respect, I believe Netanyahu, because he knows this would flare up not just locally, it would flare up the entire region, and it would upset his partners in the Abraham Accords so much and kind of fly in the face of their agreements that I think that on this, he'll probably try to keep Ben Gvir and others restrained. You think he's going to be able to do that? It'll be a, a very delicate balancing act. So, Tahani, maybe let's come then to Palestinian politics. I mean, how has President Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazin, and his government responded to the Janine raid and this recent uptick in violence? So we've seen the PA come out and obviously condemn what's happened. Again, the PA itself is undergoing a legitimacy crisis. It's deeply unpopular on the ground. So what we've seen is basically the same tried and failed strategies without the PA actually planning anything coherently that might actually have an impact. So we're seeing them cut off things like security coordination, which they've done in the past, but have maintained discreetly. Cutting off security coordination with the Israelis, you mean? Cutting off security coordination, which they have done, which they have called for numerous times in the past, which we saw them do back in 2020, but to a certain degree. So often you tend to see daily when it comes to the civil administration, daily activities like movement, those sorts of things, coordination tends to be cut off. But when it comes to intel sharing, that often tends to remain discreetly. And that's primarily because there is a relationship of codependency that both the Israelis and the PA recognize. And so to completely break off that coordination would also work against the PA because a lot of these armed groups that are starting to prop up, a lot of the resistance we're seeing, even civil disobedience is not only targeted against Israel, it's also targeted against the PA. There is no peace process. The PA hasn't made people's lives better. It's becoming almost indistinguishable now in many aspects from the occupation. Um, you know, it's increasingly becoming regarded as a subcontractor. And the economic crisis that we're seeing, the worst in its history, has meant it doesn't even have the resources to maintain that dynamic of cooptation. So in the face of these Israeli provocations, what we're seeing from Palestinian elites is that they've been ineffective in trying to calm the situation on the ground because they're too busy infighting amongst themselves over who's going to succeed Abu Mazen or maintaining their own power bases to actually work on improving the situation on the ground or to try and restart something of a real national movement. And Tahani, we'll talk in a minute about the succession question, about what happens when Abu Mazin departs the political scene. And I also want to ask you about some of these new 
armed groups that have emerged really over the past year, particularly in the West Bank, whose ties to political elites are far less clear than those uh, of older militant groups. But just on this anger at Abu Mazin's government, to what extent do people distinguish between the political leadership, the ruling party, Fatah, and the PA itself? No, unfortunately, those lines have become so blurred over time. I mean, even institutions now like the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, has become blurred and, and basically become one with the PA. Fatah itself, that has basically hegemized the entire governing bureaucratic infrastructure in the occupied territories, has become indistinguishable from the PA, which is why it's so severely divided now. So you not only have divisions between Abbas's faction and those on the ground, but you know Fatah is so splintered that it's difficult now to even identify it anymore, which is why we're seeing these new groups form. And these groups no longer want to have any kind of political affiliation um, to existing factions. And so the anger at the Palestinian Authority doesn't translate into support necessarily for Hamas, at least in the West Bank? No, I mean, Hamas is like any other political faction, right? Relatively speaking, compared to Fatah, yes, it it does have substantial more support from Palestinians, at least now, considering how deeply unpopular Fatah is. And that's primarily because Fatah is so strongly associated with the PA and Abu Mazen. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Palestinians are happy with any particular political faction at the moment. Most Palestinians feel like none of them represent them. And yet the Palestinian Authority, the PA, it still has some function for Palestinians now. I mean, for all its flaws, it's still provide services, jobs, injects money into the Palestinian economy, even if, as you say, less recently. And I assume that economic pressure is due partly to diminished funding. Precisely. It's due to donor cuts that we've seen since the Trump era. And again, donors themselves becoming um, somewhat disillusioned with a lot of the PA, nepotism, corruption. So definitely donor funding has severely impacted the current crisis. But yes, like ultimately, the PA is an important service provider, um, albeit not a very efficient one, but there remains no current alternative to the PA. But that doesn't necessarily translate into support or legitimacy. And I think right now that's where the problem is. Maybe, Tahani, important to add that there haven't been Palestinian elections since 2006, the Palestinian Legislative Council, the PLC elections that Hamas won more than 16 years ago now. So... In spring 2021, so a couple of years ago, the Palestinians seemed to be moving again towards elections. But then Abu Mazen cancelled the vote on the pretext that Israel wouldn't allow Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem to vote. But he was probably also motivated because it looked as though Fatah might lose, right? Precisely. That would have been the first elections in over 15 years. Palestinians have been calling for a renewal of their institutions, of their leadership. And that was the first time where elections had really garnered the kind of fervor that we saw on the ground. You know, there was real cautious optimism, I'd say, but definitely enthusiasm. It wasn't necessarily about having elections per se, but what these elections represented in in the broader scheme of things. And then when that was abruptly called off, there was quite a lot of popular resistance to that. But then that happened to coincide with all the events that then kind of transpired in, in May 2021, because these elections were called off, I think, right at the end of April. And then straight after that, we had the things going on in, in Al-Aqsa and Sheikh Jarrah and the cross-border conflict we saw after that. But even after all of those things died down, there were still continuous calls for elections all throughout last year. Palestinians are still calling for elections. And again, it's because they know, they recognize that there needs to be a change from the top. 
So this week, Tahani, we put out a report which you authored looking at Palestinian succession and how, if that doesn't go well, it could lead to factional fighting among Palestinians, among some of these new groups as well, even the PA's collapse. So Abu Mazen has three positions. Now, he's the head of Fatah, the ruling party. He's the head of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, so this wider nationalist movement. But most importantly, he's Palestinian president, head of the PA. And in that role in particular, there are defined succession procedures. No, there is an institutional way that it should happen. I mean, the Palestinian constitution or the basic law, which resembles something like a constitution, the closest thing they have to a constitution, is very explicit in terms of those guidelines. Once the president passes from the scene, if he passes away, you would normally have the speaker of the Palestinian Legislative Council take over for 60 days before new presidential elections are then held. That would be for the PA. The PLO, again, has its own internal mechanism, which would then be decided amongst a vote, amongst its executive committee members. And Fatah, as an organization which Abbas has headed again for the last 15 years, 16 years coming up to, again, has its own internal mechanisms whereby you would see the organization itself vote on who, who the next leader should be. So each institution has very clear guidelines about that process. There's no large uncertainty in terms of who's going to end up succeeding Abbas when it comes to Fatah and the PLO. Where the uncertainty lies is how succession will be decided for the PA. So in principle, for the presidency, as you say, the Speaker of Parliament, the Speaker of the PLC should assume power for two months until presidential elections. But Abbas has dissolved the parliament a few years ago. So the formal procedures seem unlikely to be followed. You want to talk through what might happen instead? Right. So ideally, they would end up following clear institutional guidelines. Unfortunately, the reality is something else. For the last years, Abbas has worked to dismantle institutional avenue for succession to happen through any legitimate trajectory. We no longer have a Palestinian legislative council. He dissolved that back in 2018. He has effectively absorbed the judiciary into the executive through uh, numerous decrees. The, la- the last was back in October. You know, we've seen judges of what should be the Supreme Constitutional Court being directly appointed by Abbas. So in terms of providing any constitutional trajectory for this to happen, it's becoming almost unthinkable now. So the next best case would be Abbas either directly appointing someone, which again seems very unlikely, The idea of having a clear successor that could potentially be appointed would work possibly in his disadvantage uh, if he starts to feel like power is beginning to gravitate towards his potential successor. So right now, a lot of people around him think that he is now deliberately trying to keep things ambiguous. The idea of who could be appointed next is unclear. So the second option, which we're most likely going to end up seeing is the PLO, which considers itself to be an institution above the PA the PLO Executive Committee, then taking the decision to appoint someone. But again, that would only be temporary, which by their own admission, um, they recognize will not be a long-term solution to what effectively then would need to go at some point to a popular vote. Do you think there's a chance that the main frontrunners, and I don't know if you want to say a word or two about who they are, could sort of coalesce behind a candidate to take over, that there could be some sort of elite bargain and that someone enjoys reasonably broad support among elites, which could at least prevent some sort of factional collapse? I mean, that has been the strategy over the last couple of years. 
alliances are, are continuously shifting. But unfortunately, at the moment, there tends to be, uh, at least in the Palestinian case, a lot of people peg themselves as kings rather than kingmakers. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these individuals cannot be co-opted. It just depends on who the highest bidder is. So Hussein al-Sheikh, because of his uh, incredibly close relationship with Israel, which for many Palestinians feel is going to be the deciding factor here, this decision will not be one that is entirely dependent on Palestinians. This is going to be a decision being made for them from outside Israel, like Israel's allies, the U.S., so for a while, people did peg Hussein al-Sheikh, but unfortunately, there was an incident where we had a leaked recording of Hussein al-Sheikh, who was caught slandering the president and his decision making. So now that has effectively left the succession issue kind of a little bit up in the open because no one really knows where Hussein al-Sheikh kind of stands now with Abbas. But that could, you know, leave other potential contenders. But again, none really have the kind of traction with external powers the way that Hussein al-Sheikh does. So Hussein al-Sheikh, you talked about, but who might be some of the other contenders? Jabril Rajoub, again, is a long-standing member of Fatah. He used to be a former member of the Preventative Security Forces. Majid Faraj is the, is the current head of general intelligence, and Hussein al-Sheikh now heads the coordination with the civil administration. So he's the main go-to or go-between Israel and the Palestinians. And each have their own sorts of power bases. At one point, we had Tawfiq Tarawi in the race. Again, we saw his position see a decline because of some of the things that he's said about Hussein al-Sheikh, because of some of the positions he's taken against Hussein al-Sheikh. But these are effectively people around Abbas at the moment. And this is where ultimately a lot of people see the succession battle being played out. But no one knows. And what about someone, Marwan Bakhuti, who's you know, in Israeli jail, but still reportedly popular? What about somebody who's not immediately close to, to Abbas, but is more popular among Palestinians? Is there any chance that something like that might happen? Again, Barwazi's popularity is dependent primarily now on him garnering the protest votes. You know, at one point when, when there was the potential for presidential elections back in 2021, most of the support that Barwazi's camp had managed to garner were protest votes against Abu Mazen, because at that point the race was being fought between Abu Mazen and Barwazi. You know, no one else, no other political faction, no other political party decided to front a presidential candidate. And the same thing this time around, you know, Palestinians are still very much divided on that question, which makes going through an institutional process even harder because there is no active opposition on the ground that can offer a viable strategy. They can't even agree on a candidate. They're not even unified around a candidate. And Myra, among Israelis, I mean, this is going to be a big change now. I mean, Abu Mazen has been president for a long time. How much thinking is there, even if behind the scenes, about what comes next? There's plenty of thinking behind the scenes, and it's interesting now because the defense officials I speak to and uh, former defense officials openly say that the PA is the infrastructure of stability in the West Bank, and they are dependent on it. They want it to continue. The previous government, Bennett Lapid, spoke about the, the need to strengthen the PA against Hamas. So this is something I'm sure there's a million scenarios that the IDF is prepared for on the day after Abu Mazen. But the government that is currently in place under Netanyahu is openly anti-PA. They are constantly talking about how the PA is a terror organization. We're hearing, you know, the types of rhetoric that we heard back in the 70s and the 80s when there was no contact between the two. So the people in government now, some of them have openly said that they want the PA to collapse. And then if you turn around and speak to the military officials, they'll say that that is literally the worst scenario that could possibly happen for Israeli security. So we have a very interesting dynamic there. One of the 
dangers that we warn about in the report that we got out this week is if there's some sort of succession that collapses either because elites themselves can't agree on who comes next or because there's so much pressure for a popular vote because, as you say to Hani, whoever takes over doesn't enjoy the legitimacy of having been voted in. One of the scenarios we warn about is the further fragmentation of the West Bank where you have more armed groups connected to individual politicians, even potentially battling each other. And it seems that over the past few years, the PA has really lost control of much of the security in the West Bank. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about how that's happened and how some of these groups, I mean, there's the group in Nablus, Lion's Den is one that's got a lot of attention, but there's other similar groups in Jenin and other places that have emerged fairly recently. I mean, do you want to talk about how that's happened? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely spot on with that in terms of the PA losing control and losing its grip on the ground. And we've seen that kind of accelerated over the last couple of years, especially since we saw that during the Trump era where we saw cuts to the PA's funding and, and budget. So we have seen these armed groups prop up and some of them have been our members that are affiliated to the Palestinian security forces. But that has been a long-standing practice. For a long time, we've had, you know, different branches of the security forces, different armed factions on the ground being affiliated to different kinds of elites. But now you're increasingly seeing those divisions where some elites are aligned to the status quo and others have more vested local interests. And that's where we're seeing these sorts of armed groups now prop up. I mean, even today, if you want to talk about Janine, you still have armed groups affiliated to certain security elites. That is where they get a lot of their logistics, money, weapons, but where their interests lie very deeply. We can no longer talk about the PA as being a unitary actor anymore. Political elites, even amongst those within the succession battle, are very deeply divided in terms of where their interests lie and whether that's vested in the status quo or more locally rooted. And Tahani, it's quite common to hear people talk about a potential third intifada. Tell me if this is wrong, but the second intifada, 2000, depends how you count it, 2005 or so. I mean, initially it was a spontaneous uprising, but it was quickly instrumentalized by Palestinian elites, political elites, both Fatah and Hamas at the time. Given now the sort of disconnect between Palestinians and their political leaders, what would that mean for a wider uprising in the West Bank, potentially East Jerusalem, and what would that actually look like now? I mean, look, people have been talking about a third intifada for years now. Every time something erupts, people start talking about another potential third intifada, you know, on the horizon. And maybe a few years ago, that might have been somewhat inaccurate. But I think today, the sentiment on the ground is definitely ripe for one. It seems very likely, given localized frustrations and popular anger on the ground against the PA, against their own leadership and against what is increasingly becoming a more brutal occupation. But what we would most likely end up seeing this time, what what could distinguish this and the father from previous ones, is that it's going to most likely end up being more decentralized and fragmented because Palestinians are so deeply divided, politically speaking, geographically speaking. So not only are we talking about different areas kicking off in different ways, Yes, that could have some kind of unitary or reactive events and coordination going on, like we saw with the unity in Tafada. But the difference here would be that it would be much harder to contain because Palestinians are so deeply politically divided. So even if we were to look at the phenomenon going on on the ground now, if we're talking about the Janine Brigades, if we're talking about the Lion's Den, these groups are not affiliated to factions anymore. It's difficult to pinpoint who it is that you need to start negotiating with or sitting down with 
the only thing that is now unifying these groups is that they are frustrated with the current status quo. But in terms of objectives, in terms of strategies, there is no unity there. In terms of who's allied to who, it's difficult to pinpoint because a lot of these groups are now trying to bridge those divisions. So it's difficult to pinpoint who, you know, during the second intifada, during the first intifada, you know, it was quite clear where that leadership was coming from. Palestinians had something of a unified leadership. They no longer have that anymore. And what's worse now is that back during the second intifada, the first intifada, you had organizations like the PLO. And back during the second intifada, you had the PA. And ultimately, when it came to having to try and cool things on the ground, those were the people that you would need to negotiate with. We no longer have that. And so US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was in the Middle East over the last few days. First, he was in Egypt, then he visited Netanyahu in Jerusalem, and then Abbas in Ramallah. And clearly, the judicial reform, some of Netanyahu's coalition partners, all that is a concern in Washington. But Blinken's trip certainly doesn't suggest there's going to be much change in US policy. Now, despite the new government, in some ways, the Secretary of State almost seemed to be going through the motions. Yes, I mean, Biden is not a fan of Netanyahu, and there were some hopes when he was elected that there would be some change. But other than rhetoric, there's not much to expect from the U.S. administration, primarily because it has its interests elsewhere at this point, and it also wants to coordinate with Israel on Iran. I also think that the timing of this drone attack in Iran is not coincidental. Uh, Netanyahu is in hot water regarding the judicial reforms, regarding the Jerusalem attacks, and somehow... This uh, drone attack happened right before Blinken came in, and it in some ways overshadowed some of the other stuff on the agenda. Uh, um, this was the attack that people believe is Israeli on the Iranian. What was it on? An arms facility in Isfahan. So Blinken did meet with civil society leaders in Israel, and that was his way of politely signaling to Netanyahu that judicial reform should be done in a respectful way, what he called uh, there should be consensus about it. And he kind of applauded the vibrant uh, protests and debate going on. That was the extent to that. But it, it seems like in private, there were some words that Blinken had for Netanyahu. And Netanyahu, of course, assured him that Israel would remain a democracy. But it's very clear that Israel has already said that it wants to build more settlements as a direct response to the attacks in Jerusalem. And so that is surely going to fuel the fire. And while you know, the U.S. administration is good at saying that Israel shouldn't do these things. Israel continues to do these things with impunity. And you don't think there may be still some red lines that Blinken would have communicated and that Netanyahu is aware of, and he's going to have to sort of manage his coalition to make sure they're not crossed. I mean, annexation was obviously, you know, he tried that some years ago, you know, met for once with some resistance from Western powers in particular and then sort of walk those plans back. So, I mean, it's not quite a carte blanche that, that Israel has, right? Well, I think the status quo on the Holy Esplanade is a red line. And again, that red line is shift. So it's not always clear what it is. But I believe that on that, the US is very clear with Netanyahu. The issue of annexation is important to keep in mind that I doubt that this government will move forward with formal annexation. It will continue to move forward with all kinds of other steps that are de facto annexation as well as moving certain authorities from the military into the civilian ministries. And that is the way they will do it, because the U.S. would obviously, as well as the UAE, would not look very kindly on an actual move towards annexation. So I would be more weary of the behind-the-scenes, smaller incremental steps that Israel is taking. Marav, can I ask, so the conflict, the Palestinian question, I mean, it didn't play much of a role in the last elections. It wasn't really a very 
highly visible part of the campaign. The conflict just doesn't feature, at least not visibly, in Israeli politics and society the way it did some years ago, even with the uptick in violence and the recent attacks on Israelis. But in some ways, could you see what's happening with Netanyahu wanting to check judicial power, the worsening relations in Israel itself between Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel, which we haven't talked about, but this rise in social tensions, all these can they in some way be traced back to the conflict and the occupation? I mean, is that fair? Yes, absolutely. That would definitely be my analysis. And that would be the analysis probably of the very small left in Israel, which has no political power. But the protests that we're seeing are not directly linked to the occupation or to Israel's you know, military rule over Palestinians. But the illiberal policies that continue to kind of increase are clearly based on the fact that Israel holds millions of people under its control. And the people on the streets protesting the moves against the judiciary, no one's protesting policy toward the Palestinians, right? That's not part of it. Israelis believe that Palestinian rejectionism and Palestinian terror are the main reasons why an agreement hasn't been reached. If you push Israelis, some of them will still say, yes, we need an agreement. Yes, we need a two-state solution. Even Netanyahu on CNN said there's a formula for peace out there with the Palestinians. But obviously, when you look at the policies on the ground, there's no way in which Israeli governments or the people who have voted for these governments are actually interested in making concessions or speaking with Palestinians seriously about a solution. Israelis believe that they seek peace. That's how they see it. And Mara, tell me if this is wrong, but in some ways, Israeli politics is defined much more now by the religious secular divide than it is by divisions between liberals and conservatives over peace with the Palestinians, especially as the peace process for now seems mostly dead. Yes, I, I would say it's secular religious and also overlapping on those lines is liberal and illiberal or the liberal and the ultra-nationalist who also, you know, Netanyahu's son uh, identifies with Orban in Hungary and he goes to these trips and he meets with the global far right. There's a conservative think tank that has been pushing a lot of this legislation. They are also responsible for the Jewish nation state law. So, and a lot of them are religious. So it overlaps for sure with that. And the middle upper class in Tel Aviv, many of them who are protesting, they want to have a strong economy. They want to have their rights and they want the religious community to not ride on the back of their taxes. So it's definitely both those things. And just to push a bit, surely the nature of the Israeli government makes a difference. I mean, the previous government was still prepared to sit down with the PA, prepared to talk to Palestinian leaders, even in a limited way. I mean, there's got to be a difference between that and a government comprising coalition partners that actively want to annex the West Bank or describe the PA as a terrorist entity. This government may in some ways be a natural culmination of where Israeli politics has been headed, but there's still a difference, not in terms of getting to a two-state solution, hopes for which, as we talked about before, seem to be pretty much disappearing. But it must make a difference in terms of Palestinians' lives and a difference in terms of the potential for violence. Though I guess last year was the deadliest year for Palestinians in many years, and that was largely under the old government. I guess that's already a qualification. I would say that the difference is an enlightened occupation versus a very, very belligerent occupation. That's mainly the difference. Obviously... And what do you mean an enlightened occupation? An enlightened occupation, according to some in the military, is making the checkpoints faster, providing more and more permits for Palestinians to work and provide the labor force inside Israel. These are the types of enlightened occupation that I'm talking about. 
Also, you can see that that's the difference between how the military understands the situation where it has to put its forces on the ground and and risk their lives versus the government. So there were small changes, but those were not political. And the last government was not willing to sit down with the PA. It was willing to have its generals speak to the security forces. Uh, there were no political negotiations. Danny, do you want to come in on that? I just think we have yes. to be really careful with semantics here, because often the concessions that we see, whether it's an increase in work permits, more money being funneled to the PA, whatever it is, they often tend to be used as a carrot and stick that Israel uses when it needs to. And so a lot of the privileges that we've seen revoked over the last couple of weeks because of, for example, the PA trying to defer the decision to the ICJ, these aren't new. Israel has done that before. When it wants to, it uses those privileges it gives to revoke them back. So it's a bit of a carrot and stick. So I think we have to be really, really careful when we tend to title these things as an enlightened occupation, because there is a political purpose behind it. And it's often used to pressurize the Palestinian leadership when it wants to. Right. The security, the the economy, but not about politics. So I want to end it in a moment by talking about potential flashpoints in the week ahead, especially around Ramadan. But just before that, Myra, I mean, if violence does escalate, not just in the sense of another war between Hamas in Gaza and Israel, but more broadly, so also in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, even unrest again between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Israeli Jews in, in Israeli cities like it was in 2021. What difference do you think it will make that someone like Ben Gavir is the national security minister and other members of the government are sort of close to the settler movement? How are relations between the new government and the Israeli military? How are those going to play out if there is another escalation? Well, the entrance of Ben Gvir and Smotrich give a lot more legitimacy to settler violence, give legitimacy to Israeli soldiers shooting even at a, a child who throws a stone. I mean, they talk about changing the rules of engagement. The rules of engagement in practice are already quite lenient. Any threat to a soldier or perceived threat. So in this sense, I think we'll see a continuation. Where it might change is Ben Gvir is in charge of the police force. He's basically the de facto commander now of the police. And that is a a change. And in that sense, at the Al-Aqsa, Holy Esplanade area, there might be even, we've seen already that they will shoot inside the mosque, but there might be even more leniency there on shooting and also inside Israel when it comes to Palestinian citizens of Israel. Ben Gvir has two main uh, agendas. One is to rein in on what they call crime, which is mostly because Palestinian areas inside Israel are highly underprivileged and there's a lot of crime there. So he wants to move police forces, and if he can as well, the border police, which is part of the army. He wants to move them in and kind of, you know, uh, crack down on crime, as he says. So that could lead to a lot more violence. And the other is, as I mentioned, the Al-Aqsa issue. If he wants to bring more and more Jews there to pray, and if he allows the police to go in there more, then we're going to see a lot more violence there as well. And that sort of brings us to what we should be looking out for. So if you go back to the latest sort of bout of fighting between Hamas in particular and the Israelis in May 2021, it had been building for a while, but the immediate triggers were tensions again around the Holy Esplanade that we talked about, the expulsions from Sheikh Jarrah cracking down on Palestinians gathering around the Damascus Gate in East Jerusalem. So, I mean, all these remain flashpoints. What should we be watching for? I mean, what are some of the signals that another bout of fighting is imminent? Well, I think uh, all those places remain, and and also East Jerusalem now, uh, because Ben Gvir has also said that he wants to accelerate home demolitions. And when you uh, bring a force in to demolish a home, uh, not only are you leaving people homeless in the middle of the winter, 
Um, but you are leaving kids seeing soldiers demolishing their home. And that's what they grow up with. And East Jerusalem uh, is extremely uh, neglected. And Israel is completely responsible because it annexed East Jerusalem uh, for the homes and the schools there. Um, so I think uh, just like we saw with the, the shooting attacks over the weekend, uh, East Jerusalem is going to be a flashpoint and not just in the Al-Aqsa area, but in small villages in or neighborhoods uh, inside East Jerusalem. Um, and we should also be looking at um, the way in which this judicial reform will pass and the attacks that we are seeing on the media and the efforts to kind of ban the Palestinian flag from protests. If uh, if Israelis are pushed to a limit where they feel like their own rights are infringed, that, that could lead to a new dynamic that we haven't seen. That's not necessarily going to immediately affect the Palestinians, but it certainly could be a change in in how Israel relates to its own citizens. And Tahani? With regards to triggers, I mean, like Mayrav said, a lot of those existing triggers that set off what happened back in 2021 are still on the ground. Now that we have Ramadan coming up, it seems very, very likely that we're going to end up seeing things accelerate even further on the ground, especially when we're talking about areas like Janin, Nablus, Hawara, Hebron, this armed phenomenon has started to spread across into the south. So these are real tension points, especially when we're talking about the areas where the PA are marginalized, areas where Israel itself will not allow the Palestinian security forces to physically operate. Um, So on the one hand, you know, you have Israel weakening the PA, but on the other hand, blaming it for being weak and and not strong enough to try and contain some of the instability on the ground. And also the Al-Aqsa compound, you know, we've seen time and time again, pretty much every Ramadan, it's becoming so routine that Every time you have a, a holy festival or celebration or month, Israel tends to then restrict freedom of movement, worship, gatherings. And that's where we end up seeing things start to really flare up. So I think, as Miriam said, those tensions that we saw back in 2021 are still very much there. And without any accountability on Israel's part, without any sort of pressure on Israel's part to allow Palestinians the freedom to worship in those areas, that's definitely going to be a triggering point in the next couple of months for sure. Tahani, Myra, thanks so much for coming Thank on. Thank Thanks. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Israel-Palestine. Everywhere else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. We put out a short piece last week, I think, on Ben Gavir's visit to the Holy Esplanade. So do check that out. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. Thanks, of course, as ever, to all of you. Our listeners, please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org, or you can write to me directly at crisisgroup.org if you have any suggestions, questions, or concerns. If you like the show, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Leave us a positive rating or review. And I very much hope you'll join us again next week.